0: Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, and burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning church, how are we doing? Good, all right. Uh, well, as Pastor Sam said, uh, my name's Eric, um, me and my wife, Tony, uh, and our two kids, Angelina and Isaac, down in the kids, we enjoy coming here and seeing what God's doing among among this church. It's actually a big pleasure of mine, as Sam said, it's a big help to him, but it's a big pleasure of mine uh, to serve him as uh, he gets some time away from the pulpit. Um, just a word about uh, Pastor Sam, um, many of you know um some of the things he does and and all that we we do a preaching lab and I he invests in men with such grace and such passion uh, I am I am very thankful to the amount of time that even in the difficult season he's in he's invested in me um, in this message and and just in my ability to um, read texts and and preach them uh, faithfully so um, I'm just thankful. I don't see him in here now, but I just want to publicly um, honor Pastor Sam. So um, let me pray. (coughs) Father, uh, I come to you, um, we come to you as people um, with sins, with transgressions, with iniquity, with uh, imperfections. Father, we pray that you would speak to us a good word, about them today. We pray that um, you would use me, an imperfect man, um, to preach your gospel, that um, hearts would be changed, that minds would be enlightened, and that you would be given glory. Um, so we pray for it in that end for your glory and our good, in Christ's name, amen. So now as we head into today's message, there is two difficulties that I already see that we have to contend with. The first one is the text itself. What I, mean, what I mean by this is this text is a thick piece of meat, which means we could chew on it for hours and barely scratch the surface. See, one commenter of the, of the 51st Psalm said, This psalm is the brightest gem of the whole book and can, it contains instructions so large and doctrines so precious that the tongues of angels could not do it justice to the full development. Now, church, hear me. If the tongues of angels can't do it justice, this young preacher ain't got a shot, all right? But there is a, actually a second difficulty that's, that we have to contend with this morning, and that is of the culture we find ourselves in and the, way, the ways that it has shaped and molded us. In 1892, a psychologist named William James, who many have called the father of American psychology, released a book simply called Psychology, the Briefer Course. In it, James would propose an idea that would revolutionize the lens in which all of the world, really, and us especially here in America, would come to see all things as it relates to the self. It would change the way teachers taught, the way coaches coached, the way parents parented. It would change the way that Advertisers advertised and counselors counseled, and ultimately the way you you'd. See, within 130 years, this idea has become such a part of our culture that it's nearly impossible to see all the ways that it influences the way we think and the way we feel. See, this idea, of course, is the self esteem. How do you think and feel about you? Every effort would be made to make sure that kids would not ever see themselves in any negative way. Kids' sporting leagues would stop giving out wins and losses and keeping score because losing, and especially losing by a big amount, had had potential to lower a child's self-esteem and self-worth. Some school districts would ban the use of red pens when grading papers because, according to one study, the color red had the potential to affect a child's uh, self-esteem and self-worth. They would give him negative feelings. And other school districts would go away from the standard grading system because of the potential effects on a kid who receives an F. See, the theory is that the better you think and feel about you, the more likely you are to be successful, to have great relationships, and to experience overall happiness in your life. See, you and I, we've been discipled by our culture. We've been taught that the way to squeeze joy out of life is by by avoiding dwelling on our shortcomings and to always believe the best about ourselves. We've been trained how to minimize our faults and maximize our virtues. And consequently, we've been led away from embracing and digging into one of the biggest means of grace of God in our lives. Deep, brutally honest, and soul empty in confession. See, the problem with self-esteem is not that it has nothing to offer. It does. But that its offer is weak. It's fragile. And that's why we're going to this psalm this morning, Psalm 51. Because it allows us to see ourselves in a way that self-esteem would like to hide us from. So while culture has taught us via self-esteem how to avoid thinking any negative, feel, uh, any negative feeling, Psalm 51, I believe, is going to teach us how to think and feel even about our faults and failures, all the way down to the core of who we are that prepares our hearts to not just feel valuable, but to feel treasured. But before we're able to understand how this kind of confession opens up the treasury of grace to us, we need to get a picture of what this kind of confession looks like. So if you would, open up your Bibles with me, Psalm 51. We're going to start in the heading. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, stop. This psalm is one of the few psalms that pinpoints the events surrounding its writing. Every psalm is birthed out of real life. That's why they're so powerful. That's, they're gritty and raw, just like real life. They're songs and prayers that are birthed out of real joy, real pain, real heartbreak, real fear, and real hopelessness. And although many of them are private in terms of their inspiration, Psalm 51 has a very public context. Now, many of us are likely aware of the story of David and Bathsheba, but let me recap it real quick. And this is, we get this from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So, uh, David's in his palace when he should be out fighting battle. Um, and he, he, it says he gets up off of his couch and goes out onto his balcony. And he looks across and he sees a woman bathing. David goes, Who, who's that? And one of, one of the men there says, I, I believe that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. David goes, "Go go get her for me. So the, the scripture tells us that She comes to him, and says that David took her, and he lay with her, right? Don't think cuddled with her, right? But it says says then he sent her off. He didn't honor her. He had no intentions of, of being with her. He just sent her off. And she returns word back to say, I'm pregnant. Well, this is a problem. See, David did not want to be caught in his sin. And so he sends word to the battlefield, you know what, send Uriah home. The thought is, in his mind, I can send Uriah to be with his wife and they can be intimate and he can think it's his kid. So he does that. But when he sits down with Uriah, asks him how the battle's going, it's good, and he goes, all right, well, go ahead and head home. You know, enjoy a night with your wife. See, Uriah is a man of character. He won't go. He instead says, how can I, while I should be in the field with my comrades and defending you, the king, how can I return to the battlefield and go, or return from the battlefield and lay, lay with my wife? And so he lays at the gate of the palace. Okay, so David Not wanting to be caught in his sin again, writes a letter, and he puts it in the hand of Uriah and sends him back to the battlefield. And this letter says, "Take Uriah, put him where the battle is most strong, and have all the other soldiers back away." David ordered the murder of Uriah. See this way, David could quickly marry Bathsheba and cover his sin. He'd be good. So David concealed from himself and others the grotesque nature of his sin, just like you and I tend to. He looked to get away with the perfect crime, and it worked, except there was one who saw all of it. In one of the most understated verses in all of Scripture, at the end of chapter 11, verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. So God sends Nathan to David, Nathan is a is a prophet, and he sends sends him to David with a parable. And the purpose of the parable is to <clears throat> is to um, enrage David's heart against the character of the parable. And it works. David is filled with anger about this story of a man who's been unjust and taken um, taken from someone else. Nathan says to him. David, you're the man. It's you, David. You are the one who did this injustice. You are the one who shows no concern or remorse. It is you. And David's eyes are open to his sin. See, David had sinned. David had tried to cover his sin. But God has seen. He's guilty. He's been caught. And now he's confronted. He's no longer able to escape or hide from the suffocating reality of his sin-stained hands. God, through Nathan's parable, has put him face to face with the reality of who he really is and what he's really done. David is appalled at himself. See, This psalm is birthed out of this story. We can see from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 the events that have inspired David to write this psalm. However, we shouldn't suppose upon the reason why David wrote this psalm. We could easily assume that this is David's prayer of repentance after doing such horrible and twisted acts. But I believe to assume that would be wrong. That is not exactly what's going on here. We know this because the, psalm, the heading of the psalm does not say to God, but rather to the choir master. See, this is significant because this psalm was written for God's people. It was meant to be sung in the corporate gathering again and again and again, as a way of shaping and molding his people. This psalm is for us, it's for the church. This psalm wasn't written then for one man who had, ve- who had failed in very public and very gruesome ways, but for all who have failed, even in private ways. So let's take a look at what what David writes in it. Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David wastes no time. He's going to kick it off with a plea for mercy. And I think most of us can understand this pretty well. Anybody who has ever sped knowingly and has been caught knows this feeling. You come up over a hill, you come around a bend, and you see a police officer, and he's got his radar gun on you. Boom, busted, caught. Now, as you scramble for your license and, and insurance card, I would doubt any of us is thinking, man, I sure hope this cop is just. I sure hope he, he doesn't let me slide. I sure hope he makes me pay the full penalty of the law. No. We're thinking, how can I drive away in the same financial state I had five minutes ago? So many of us would begin thinking about all the reasons the officer should be gracious to us, why he should treat us kindly. I don't know, maybe I can, maybe I can plead ignorance. So the officer asked, Do you know how fast you were going? Uh, not really but we know right because the moment in between when we saw the officer with his gun on with his radar gun on us and the moment that we slowed down 15 miles an hour in the matter of 5 seconds completely naturally we looked down we saw the speedometer we know but maybe if I'm ignorant I'll get mercy I wouldn't have been speeding if I would have known officer Give me mercy based upon my ignorance. Be merciful to me, because really I'm a good person. Normally I go the speed limit. I just got caught up in a bad situation. Give me mercy based upon the intentions of my heart. see, David says that the mercy we seek cannot be sought based upon our ignorance. It cannot be based upon the intentions of our heart to be good, but must find their grounding in the steadfast love and abundant mercy of God. This is where all real confession begins, realizing who you are confessing to. In Exodus 34, God says of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin. It's only forgiveness based solely upon the character of God that has the power to blot out transgression, to wash deeply iniquity, and to cleanse from sin. To experience the continual renewal, restoration, and joyful intimacy with God can only find its basis in becoming more deeply aware of his attributes. David knows the propensity of the human heart, that it's still to sidestep our guilt. Now, there's many ways that we try to sidestep our guilt, but let me talk about three of them. Okay, note takers, they're all going to be ours. Get excited, all right? So the first way that we do it is we reduce our sin. What this is like looking at your sin, right, seeing, okay, yeah, I sin, but... I haven't murdered like David. I didn't commit adultery. You look around and and you lessen the amount of, of offense in your sin. So we reduce it to the point that we don't have to feel guilt. Second way is rebuttal, right? When we use rebuttal to remove our guilt, we see what we have done and we know it's wrong. But there's some situations around it that should be taken into account. Sure, I transgressed, but fill in the blank. And the third way is religion. See, David, of all people, could have pointed to his past. He could have pointed to slings and stones. He could have pointed to all the things he had done. Or he could say, I'm going to make amends in the future. But see, David doesn't do this. He doesn't sidestep the guilt. In fact, he looks directly at it. Look next, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David realizes the burden of his sin and transgression. He feels the weight of them. So let me ask you, when you feel guilt, What do you do? See, we would be wise to think deeply and accurately about our sin, to feel grievously about the ways that our actions have been a direct attack on the holiness of God. See, David doesn't give any option or any way out of guilt besides complete and full ownership of the actions that brought it on. Look at the ownership language. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. See, true confession just simply says, I'm guilty, and I see the guilt and my guiltiness. And says, therefore, you would be just in giving me justice. See, David isn't saying that our sins are not sins against others. But rather, he's doubling down on the fact That every sin he's done against others is ultimately a sin against the creator. The one in in which they're imaged. And as as though this isn't deep enough, as if we aren't uncomfortable enough, David is going to lead us deeper yet. Look at verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, to understand how deep David is taking taking us here, we've got to understand some different nuances between these words: sin, transgression, transgression, iniquity. We see when we see these words together, we tend to think of them as synonymous, basically saying the same thing. But it's more helpful to see that they're more like cousins than they are triplets. The word for sin here is an archery term. It literally means to miss the mark. The thought here is you're standing downrange from the target. You draw back your string. You line up the the bullseye directly in the sights. And you release. It sails over the target. You miss. Sin. You saw the target. You aimed for the target. But you missed the target. This is the, the, I wanted to be a good boy or girl. I wanted, I gave it everything I had, but I still failed. Now, transgression, that's more sinister than that. Transgression means to cross the line. The idea here is knowing the line, seeing the line, and willfully and intentionally crossing the line. Now, I've got a million examples of this because I've got children, right? So My son loves watermelon, like it's an idol in his life, right? So much so that after he's eaten about three-quarters of the watermelon, if I want a piece, I need to hide in my own home to eat it or suffer telling him no and the meltdown that, that ensues. And so this week, I'm in my corner of the kitchen hiding, eating my watermelon, and my daughter comes in and sees me. She goes... Oh, Isaac. I stop her. I say, no, no, no. Listen to me. Look me right in the eye. Do not tell your brother that I'm in here eating watermelon. She looks at me and goes, okay. Turns, goes into the living room. Daddy's eating watermelon. What are you doing? All right. so, So she saw the line. She knows exactly what I asked her to do. But she crossed the line, right? Transgression. But iniquity, see, iniquity is the deepest of all three. The word iniquity means twisted or bent. And David, using it here in this context, points to the root of all the sin and and transgression, a heart that has been bent and twisted in on itself. And so David, by saying here, behold, Or take notice of this. I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me? He isn't trying to give us an out. He isn't trying to say, as your psychologist might, that your problems are your mom's fault. He's traced back the sin and transgression problem to its root. It's in him. It's in you. And it's in me. See, I feel this. Now... I don't think I've been an MC with any of you, and um, I don't know how many of you actually know my story, but I've been a Christian for about 11 years now. And when I met Jesus, I was a drug addict, an alcoholic. I was making a ton of foolish decisions, and I could point to everything in the world as to why I was making these decisions. A rough childhood, not having someone step alongside me and, and mentor me. I could point to everything in the world. And yeah, I didn't have to feel guilt. I didn't have to feel shame. Right? But I didn't get what God was after for me. See, God wedged something deep in me back then. And, and when when I would cry out to him in that moment, and I'd, I'd be like, but God, this has happened and this has happened. And what am I supposed to do? He said something direct and it stuck. God says, I don't change your past and I don't change what happens to you. I change you. And until I was the problem, there was no change. Until the problem was deep inside, there's no change. I mean, he, David says this here. He makes us look at our sin and transgression and feel guilt and brings us and says, it's in your heart and this brings shame he's saying it's not a tough childhood it's not a hormonal imbalance it's not a, a proper diet or a poor diet it's not lack of sleep and it isn't lack of knowledge that's leading you to sin and transgression it's in you and it's in me see david has brought us face to face with an uncomfortable reality that we are not just people who sin and transgress there is a fundamental problem deep within the human heart in the core of one's being. And it isn't just others. It's me too. See, we've reached the crescendo of this song. And David wants us to see or behold two things. And he sets them up against each other. Who you really are what God's desires for his people are. I mean, can you see the difference here? In one... Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my, did my mother conceive me. And on the other, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So, how does a heart that's bent get straightened? How is it that that gap is bridged? And don't run back to the third R on me. Don't go back to religion and think, man, what do I need to do? Where does confession find its base? In the abundant mercy of God. It's only the mercy of God working on your behalf that changes a heart. So David says in verse 7 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be white as snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Where's the part that I play in that? There is none. That's what makes it mercy. It's a work of God on your behalf. And this is is found in the gospel. In Christ, we're not only washed of our sin, but given righteousness. In Christ, God doesn't just hide his face from our sins, but removes our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins from his face. He doesn't just not take the Holy Spirit from us, He gives us the Holy Spirit who takes residence up in us and and is constantly conforming and shaping and molding us into the image of Christ. See, the self-esteem movement teaches you to hide or at least minimize your faults and failures so that you can believe you're valuable. But the gospel, as Tim Keller has famously said, is that you're far worse than you imagine while at the same time more loved than you could ever hope. See, by sidestepping our sin, by not seeing it or not confessing it, we also sidestep the experience of the joy that is found in the gospel, of being, having our sin removed, being brought in in the midst of our darkest hour, not working ourselves out, not, not putting on a good face, but being drawn back in. Look down to verse 13. David says, wait, before I go there, I want to make this clear. Confession is not about getting resaved. In confession, we're being reminded of the gospel, it's being reapplied to our sin so that we can be restored to the joy of our salvation. See, we look deeply at our sin, often on purpose, because then to look back at Jesus, to place our eyes back on the one who paid for our redemption, is the means that God uses to continually shape and mold the heart. The Spirit grabs that and applies the balm of the gospel to a broken heart. See, it changed David and let's, let's now look at verse 13. And David says, God, if you restore the joy of my salvation, this will be the result. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. See, Psalm 51 is how we know that David received what he was after. This psalm is David's teaching sinners how to return to the Lord. Singing aloud of God's righteousness, it's David's mouth declaring God's praise. I mean, think about all that has changed in David. He went from hiding his sin and stopping at nothing to do it, to now writing a psalm that would be sung week after week after week amongst all of God's people. like What freedom is that? In the midst of his big failures and big sins, that he's able to put it in front of the community of God's people and not crumble under, under shame. See, in confessing and receiving grace and being restored again to joy god has or david has learned something about god and about real forgiveness and real restoration that it comes not through some outward act of contrition but it comes through having our spirits broken by having contrition brought to the depths of our hearts As verse 16 says, verse 16 says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, what he's after, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, church, hear me. By sidestepping our guilt, by dodging the shame by finding some other way to deal with it than at the cross of Christ, you can avoid heartache. You can avoid feeling bad. But you miss something greater. A life lived in intimacy with God in the midst of your struggles and experienced the, jo- the freedom and joy of the salvation despite the ways you fail. Now think, why did God send Nathan to David. Didn't he know that exposing him to his sin would bring on guilt and shame? He did. But see, guilt and shame are not your punishment for the ways that you failed God. That's Jesus. Guilt and shame are your boarding pass, and confession is the flight that leads you home. You feel them, so you'll return, not hide, There will be wins and losses in in, in this life, in the battle against our flesh. And because your heart has been changed by God, and because the Holy Spirit has now taken up residence in you, you will likely have a greater and greater sensitivity to your sin. Guilt and shame will actually show up more often in your life. Use it. You've been given the ticket, board the plane, and confess it and return to God. Now, the life of a Christian and the life of a Christian church has a culture of confession. A life of continual repentance and faith, turning back to God in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our uh, transgression, in the midst of our guilt and shame, turning back to God. But a, a Christian church also has this culture of confession see it happens often personally and often as a community. We time and time again go to God in confession to be forgiven and cleansed. First John 1:9 tells us that when we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to do two things both forgive us and to cleanse us. It is a promise put into scripture that you don't have to fear feeling guilt and shame and returning to God in confession. And not just confession, but deep and brutal confession that makes me feel my sin. Because the more I feel my sin, the more joy I feel from my Savior. And James 5 tells you that when you sin, don't hide it from others. Go to your community so that they can apply the gospel and we can pray together together and it says you will be healed. Confession isn't something to be afraid of. It's a way of life. It's it's the the gift that God's given us to take guilt and shame and hand it in, in in boarding the plane of confession, to again return home and feel the joy of our salvation. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are not a God who stands just in justice and says, you need to get better, you need to do better. But you are one that draws us in when we are most crushed, draws us in when we are most broken. God, we pray that you would do that to us. When when I'm feeling guilt and shame, when these people are feeling guilt and shame, God, I pray that it would be a reminder to return, not to run. That we would find our joy in your mercy. in seeing Jesus taking our sin, taking our transgression, taking our iniquity upon himself. And paying for it on our behalf and drawing us in in love and, and treasuring us. So God, I pray that through your spirit you would do that. And I pray that you would do it for your glory and our good. Amen.